just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. Welcome back to the Rational Boomer Podcast. This is kind of a big day. It's a little different day than we would normally have in doing a Rational Boomer podcast because it's a holiday. It's Memorial Day. Now, for a lot of folks, Memorial Day is a day when families get together. There's softball, there's barbecues, there's games and fun and traveling and all that sort of thing. And I think uh, this is going to be especially important this year because of the last year of COVID. It's been tougher for families to get together, to see each other. I know it's been tough for me. I have a one-year-old granddaughter. She was born in April of 2020. Now, I was really limited. My wife and I were really limited in how many times and when we could see her. Nobody on my side of the family has even seen her yet because of the fear of COVID and her being so young. Well, now, COVID, we're on the downside of COVID. So now we're getting more opportunities to get together and meet and have fun and introduce my new grandchild to my family for once and for all. But I think it's important that as much fun as we want to have and as anxious as people will be to get together after one year being locked down, we do need to take the time to pay tribute uh, to the folks that serve this country. I mean, this is the whole reason to have a Memorial Day, to take time out, to pay tribute to those folks who served to help protect this country, to help maintain the democracy. And I know with all the things going on today that are kind of attacking our democracy and our way of life, you can appreciate just how much work it took over these many years and and how hard it was to maintain the lifestyle and the government that we have in this country. So we do truly owe them a lot. This time of year on Memorial Day, as much as I like to have the fun and such, I also like to go see, um, go to cemeteries and see my loved ones that have passed. And not just the ones that were in service, but just people who have passed. It's a good day to remember those people that were once important to you that are now gone. My mother, for example, she was never in the service, but her father was, my grandfather. I called him Grandpa Ed. And I bring him up because when I was growing up, my grandpa and I were buddies. Not grandpa and grandson. We were buddies. We hung out together. We did fun stuff together. He, uh, he was kind of a, a fun old guy. He died when he was about 74, so he's fairly young. But when he was retired, he used to he used to go out twice a week and he'd say, "I'm going off to Sally's." <laughs> now, that may sound like a bar, it might sound like a brothel, whatever, but it was the Salvation Army. And my grandfather would come back with the weirdest shit for a 70-year-old guy. One day he came back with an electric guitar. He didn't play guitar. He came back with drums one time. And another time he came back with a mini bike. Now, he was never going to ride this mini bike, but he set it up in the backyard. He had a pretty good-sized backyard, and he used to let my brother and I 
drive it around the backyard until we crashed it into the fence and broke it. And then that was pretty much over because grandma and my mom said, okay, enough is enough. But that's the kind of guy he was. But the reason why I think about him so much on Memorial Day is because he served in World War II, or the big one, as he called it, (laughs) WW2, the big one. And so what was interesting with my grandfather, he was a happy-go-lucky guy. He didn't have any, didn't seem to have any emotional damage from being in war. But the interesting thing I realized as I got older that every time I saw him, and I saw him a lot, every time there was a story about the World War II he partook in partaken in. I don't know what the hell it is. You know what I mean? He was in World War II. He talked about it every time I saw him. Now, this is, you know, this is uh, 30 years after the fact, but he still talked about it every day. But now the interesting thing about him was none of the stories were sad or upsetting or scary or gory or anything like that. That just wasn't how my grandfather was. Now, my grandfather had an interesting job in WW2, the big one. He was in the Army, but he was a driver, a truck driver, on something they called the Red Ball Express. Now, some of you may have heard of it. Some of you probably, most of you probably haven't. But it was an interesting job. What he basically did was drive a big box truck. And it would have a machine gun mounted on the, on the driver's side door. What he would do, he would drive it down from where he picked up all the resources and, and products that he was bringing down to the front lines. And he would drive down to the front lines with this stuff and bring back POWs. Not the easiest job in the world. This, this project was called the Red Ball Express. And it's fairly famous, I guess. You know, a lot of people know about the Red Ball Express. The interesting thing is that um, most of the people in the Red Ball Express were black. And I suppose that's because it was a dangerous job. I mean, you're taking a truck and you're driving with uh, all your uh, foodstuffs and products and whatever, bringing it down the front lane, and you're driving this truck through all of this down to the front lines. It's dangerous. So back in those days, they gave those kind of jobs to black people, unfortunately. Now, my grandfather is not black. He's white. Uh, And there were some white people in this situation. But that's the job he did. Now, he never talks about scary times when he was in the service. Not once. He never told me a scary story or a sad story. He didn't talk about friends that died. He would say he knew of friends that died, but then he'd move on to something else. And so he had some stories about when he was in Europe, in Italy and such, and he was running this Red Ball Express. I remember, I'll give you a sense of what kind of stories he told me. Now, my grandfather at one point worked at Grain Belt Brewery in Minnesota. And uh, the interesting thing about working at breweries back then, they not only allowed you to drink beer on the job, but they encouraged you to drink beer on the job. Now, there were limitations. You couldn't drink more than 10 beers during a shift, an eight-hour shift. (laughs) 
So needless to say, when you had that situation going, you got a lot of guys that ended up alcoholics. So drinking was a big part of my grandfather's life when he was over in the service. He was young, and the interesting thing, he had a wife and two kids, my mom and my aunt, but he still went into into the service. I think he could have got deferred because of that, but he went in. He wanted to participate. He wanted to fight for America and protect us from the Nazis and the Japanese and such. So anyway, you know, he'd be he'd be drinking a lot of beer and stuff and Back in those days, it was kind of a big deal because he was an alcoholic and because those were the times. These were the 40s. And so he was telling me a story how they were coming into Anzio. I think they were on a ship. I'm not sure. Uh, But they were coming into Anzio, Italy. And just before they get to Anzio, Italy, the way he would describe it was, Yeah, the old man told us something that uh, we needed to focus on when we got into Anzio. I said, what was that? He said, the old man told us not to drink any of the alcohol. It could be dangerous. I said, okay. Well, when he went into Anzio, obviously he avoided the alcohol. He goes, oh, hell no. Me and my buddy Whitey, (laughs) that was the kind of name they had back in those days. Me and my uh, buddy Whitey, we went out and got drunk. I go, wow, what happened? He said, well, we both woke up about three days later totally blind. I go, what? He said, yep, the old man was right. There was some bad liquor out there, and and uh, it didn't go well with us. Well, fortunately, those circumstances were temporary. He got his sight back, and he got back to fighting, and it was all uh, pretty interesting. But that's that's the kind of guy he was. He was kind of a rogue. He, was, he wasn't mean. He wasn't tough or a fighter, but he was kind of a mischievous kid. And that's why when he got older and had me around, we were just like a couple of mischievous kids. I was little. He was older, but he was willing to get in as much trouble as I was. So it was a little, little crazy. We drove my mom and my grandmother nuts a lot because of the stuff we do. Now, he never took me drinking, of course, but... Those are the kind of stories he told me about when he was in the service. He told me one other story. He told me tons of stories, but he told me one other story that I found interesting. This was a more serious story. He was driving this Red Ball Express, this big truck, taking it, uh, getting all the supplies, and then heading toward the front line, driving all the way through. He had a machine gun on his, his driver's side door. He ran into trouble. He had to shoot. And I guess he did have to do that a number of times while serving in the military. But one day he gets all the way down to the front lines and he's having to take some POWs back. You got to remember, my grandfather was kind of a rogue at the time. Not a mean guy, not a tough guy, not a bully. He was just a guy that was kind kind of a rogue. When I say kind of a rogue, let me explain this to you. I'm going to digress from this story and and tell you a quick one, then we'll go back to this story. He told me a story one time, and he was in Minneapolis, and uh, he and his buddies were all hanging out at a gas station. And uh, they were drinking, and they were working on cars. They were all kind of gearheads. My grandfather was working on cars all the time. He had three or four cars all the time. They were all junk, and he was working on them all the time. That's just who he was. 
So they're listening to the radio, listening to whatever is popular at that time of uh, time, at that time in the forties or or thirties even. Um, and all of a sudden, news bulletin came out, and the news bulletin was that John Dillinger was thought to be traveling by car and coming through Minneapolis down this specific highway, which was right by where this gas station was that my grandfather and his buddies were in. Now, of course, they thought that was cool because they were young. They'd heard about John Dillinger and all this stuff. But normal situations, what would any normal person do? And most normal people would stay out of the way in case John Dillinger did come through because, well, he was a dangerous guy. He'd killed some people. He robbed some people. So just kind of stay out of the mess. Not these guys. What they did is they went and got their little squirrel guns or 410s or whatever, and they ran out to the highway, and they laid down on their bellies in the median, waiting for John Dillinger to come by so they could take him down. Well, they laid there for about two hours. John Dillinger never came, thankfully, because God knows what would have happened. But that's the kind of guys that, that my grandfather was. They were always into something. They'd take risks. They'd take chances. So anyway, I go back to the war story now. My grandfather's driving this Red Ball Express truck. He's bringing the supplies. He gets down to the front lines. It's a little hairy, as you might guess, and he's got to take some POWs back. Well, one of the guys that he's taking back in the truck seems to be a highly decorated Nazi officer. Now, keep in mind, this guy's a Nazi. My grandfather's looking at him, and he sees this this medal on his chest, and he's never seen it before. And he points at it to the guy, and he says, what's that? And he said, that's a double or triple iron cross. We've seen the iron cross medals before, but this was apparently a double or a triple, and it was very unusual. And so... (laughs) And when I tell you this story, I'm risking making my grandfather look bad, Uh, But he was a great guy. You have to remember, this is in the middle of World War II. We're fighting the Nazis, and he's got a Nazi standing in front of him, and he doesn't like him because of all the stuff he did. So anyway, my grandfather looks at it. You know, he's young. He's in his 20s. He sees this medal that's rare. So he looks at the guy. He points at the medal, and he says, I want that. And the officer says, "Uh, no, you can't have it. He goes, no, I want it. Give it to me. He says, no, I'm not giving it to you, you know, in German. And then all of a sudden, my grandfather pulls his revolver and points it at at him and says, you give me that damn thing now. So, of course, at that point, the guy takes it off, gives it to him. They get in the truck. There's a screen or a mesh between the driver and the people in the back. And this guy makes his way up to the front to the mesh, and he starts talking to my grandfather. He says to my grandfather, um, so where do you live in the United States? My grandfather says, why the hell do you want to know? What, what do you care? He says, I'm curious. He said, I'm in, I live in Minneapolis. He goes, oh, my goodness, I have family that lives in Minneapolis. He goes, oh, okay, big deal. He said, when this war is over, I'm going to come back and get that medal. <laughs> my grandfather goes for his gun again. He says, like hell you are. He goes, no, 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 no. I want to come back and buy it from you after the war. And, and my grandfather says, 
yeah, we can talk about it. <laughs> so he's going to have this Nazi officer, if he ever makes it out of the war and out of the POW camp, come to Minneapolis and buy this medal from him. Now, the Nazi never came to get it. I actually saw the medal. And it's kind of interesting, obviously historical. He had a lot of historical things from the war. And so he he brought that back, and it was kind of interesting. He never sold it. He never did anything with it. He just stored it in a locker like all the other stuff he had. But my point is, is when I think about Memorial Day and people who have served, the only people person that's closest to me that ever served in the armed services is my grandfather, and he happened to be in World War II. Now, I never was in a position where I needed to serve. I, I was born in 1960, so in 1975, when the Vietnam War was ending, I was 15 years old. I was still three years out from ever being in a situation where I might be drafted. I knew a lot of people that were drafted, and it was a scary time. Because a lot of people weren't, well, the Vietnam War wasn't that popular. And in retrospect, it's probably a war we shouldn't have fought. But that's the problem of the government. That changes nothing about the people who served in that war because their risk and their dedication and their, their, um, their efforts there should be applauded. And they should be appreciated for their services. Of all the people who ever served in the armed services, I feel the most sorry for the Vietnam veterans. Because they were in a war they probably didn't need to fight. It was a much different war than we'd ever seen. We were looking at uh, guerrilla warfare. We were looking at unfair situations. And it was a no-win situation. When we finally got out of there, we didn't win this war. I dare say we lost the war. But worse than that, because of the times and because of all the things that were going on, you remember the Lieutenant Kelly Milai massacre where kids and women were killed. People referred to Vietnam veterans as baby killers and animals and that sort of thing. So people would come back from Vietnam after risking all they risked in order to keep this country safe and do the job that the military was intended to do, they would come back and they would get spit on and yelled at and disregarded and, and called names and that sort of stuff. So I feel the most sorry for them, and I give them the most credit because they went in and did probably one of the dirtiest jobs you could ever possibly ask anybody to do. And then when they came back, not only did they not get appreciation for it, they were yelled at and screamed at and called names. And a lot of these Vietnam veterans struggled immensely. You know, homelessness, suicide, drugs, alcohol, that sort of thing. And who's who's to say I mean, who's, who's to blame them in the sense that when you come back from something like this, you expect at least an even chance, and you're not even going to get that. And if someone's in an emotional state where they can't handle that situation and work themselves out of it, it's a tough place to put a person. And to move to alcohol or drugs or homelessness or that sort of thing isn't out of the realm of possibility by virtue of all the things they went through. Now, that's not to say Vietnam veterans all went through that. There are many that came out fine and were were successful in their own right in families and businesses and such. But even those people deserve our appreciation. 
In later years, we've got Afghanistan, and we've got Iraq, and we've got all these things. We've got a lot of young people going to war, risking it all just to do the job that is important for the United States of America and our freedom. In a day like today, Memorial Day is a day we should take at least a moment in time to show our respects and our appreciation and do it genuinely. It's real easy to be here in this country, me and you and everybody else never having served in the war, to say, oh yeah, that was tough, thank you very much, and then move on and eat your ice cream sundae. But it deserves more attention and more appreciation that. I have to force myself to do it because I can't comprehend what it's like being in war, never having been in war. It's not necessarily my fault, but it is my responsibility to make the effort to try to understand and show some appreciation to those people who fought, who died, who are still fighting. Those that struggled with emotional issues after they got up and those who have been maimed by just being in the war. We still hear today about the huge amount of suicides amongst veterans. And part of that is because they come back into a world that they're not familiar with anymore. It's not like being in the service anymore. And they're having trouble adapting. And this country isn't always as accepting as they should be of our veterans. And that's something that has to be addressed. I mean, I know so many veterans that would go to the Veterans Hospital, uh, the Veterans Administration, and need help with whatever medical situation they have. And, of course, Vietnam veterans are in their 70s and 80s right now, so they're in the most need of medical help. But uh, even the uh, folks that fought in the 90s and the 2000s, they have their issues too. And when I hear about poor care or poor attention or having to wait so long to get treatment in Veterans Hospital, that is troubling. We can give tax breaks to rich people, but the Veterans Affairs and Veterans Hospital are struggling for money. That just makes no sense. That's not right. We should be better than that. And I'm hoping under Joe Biden that we will get more attention and more money to where it belongs, to take care of our veterans. I know Donald Trump loved to talk about it. He kept telling people, yeah, I'm giving you a raise. He didn't give them a raise. That was insulting for him to stand there and say, I'll give you a raise. You just got a raise. Thank me. But there was no raise at all. This was about his own self-promotion. And he didn't care if the veterans or the service people actually got what he promised them. All he cared about was making it look like he did these great things. That's what he was all about. He was all about the show and no details. He didn't want to do the work. He just wanted the show. We saw it with COVID. We saw it with uh, Wall Street and all these things. As long as it was going good, he was taking credit. If it went bad, he was blaming somebody else. That's not an adult running this country. And the problem with it is, is when you do that, it's not just about them being a liar. It's about the people who are counting on the president and Congress to do something for them and do nothing at all. 
So then real people, real veterans suffer. And if we are going to take care of anybody in this country, our veterans should be first on the list. Again, I'm not a veteran. The only veteran I was close to was my grandfather, and he's gone. But I still appreciate what those folks have done. It's a sacrifice. Those of us like me got to do what we wanted to do. We went to college, searched for a job, started a family, and did what we are supposed to do. And we didn't have to go through some of the tragedy and the frightening times of being in the service. I never had to worry about having a landmine go off or uh, being in danger at any moment at any time. So we got to appreciate that. And we got to appreciate that by appreciating the folks that allow us to live that kind of life. I respect them because they did something I couldn't do, certainly wouldn't do if given the option. So we really need to take this day, Memorial Day, seriously. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your family. Have a barbecue. Play softball. Do whatever you do. But you got to take some time out to pay tribute to those who served. There's no doubt somebody in your family. And that's what I was trying to do here. I, I don't know that many people who have served that are related to me. I know my grandpa Ed did. And one of the ways I commemorate his actions in the service is based on what I know about him and what he told me about being in the service. I remind myself of the stories he told us, the things that brought us closer, made us buddies as well as grandson and grandfather. And I cared about him a lot. I miss him a lot. I can think about all the other things we did together too. But that was clearly an important part of his life. It had a significant impact on his life. Because as I say, from the time I can remember, say four years old till the day he died, when I was probably, I don't know, 25, every day he talked about the war. It was always funny stuff. It was always interesting stuff. But that had an impact on him that caused him to talk about it every day. We need to understand the impact that war has on our fellow citizens, those people who choose to serve in the military. It is a sacrifice for sure. They put their lives on hold while we're all starting families and starting businesses and starting jobs. They're off there fighting in war. They come back. They're a little behind us. So they deserve a leg up not only from the government, from each one of us. It's one thing to say, hey, thanks for your service. That's nice. But these people have earned more than that, and we've got to consider that. And a day like today, Memorial Day, is a day we need to focus on it. Our lives are busy, but today we have the day off. Today we can focus on that and think about how we can treat our veterans better. Because I'll be honest with you, in my lifetime, veterans have not been tr treated very well, whether it be the hospitals or whether it be attention from the Veterans Affairs. They have not been treated well, certainly not to the level they deserve. And that's got to change. And hopefully on Memorial Day, we get enough people thinking about it and enough people pressuring our government to do what they need to do. We can change that.
Because if we can't change that and people continue to be mistreated as they come out of the service, there's going to be less and less people to go into the service. Then we're going to have nobody to thank for protecting us. And then our country, our government will be at risk. So I want everybody to have a happy holiday during the Memorial Day. And uh, I want them to take some time to think about our servicemen. I'm going to go jump to a different subject here, and it is politics, not Memorial Day related. But we know that uh, the U.S. Senate blocked the passage of uh, the January 6th Insurrection Commission bill. And I knew they were going to do that. And it seems very strange because it was going to be bipartisan. It would be a better way to look at this insurrection for the Republicans But they didn't want any part of it because they know they have some connection to why it happened and how it happened. So they decide instead to delay it. And by delaying it, that doesn't mean they get rid of it. Because as I've said before, there are plenty of court cases, four to 500 court cases. A lot of stuff is going to come out on those court cases. And of course, the Democrats will have their select committees and interviews and uh, hearings and such. So between now and the next year or so, plenty is going to come out about the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The Republicans kind of push it off to the side now, but it'll still be exposed. And then on top of that, they'll have to explain why they tried to cover it up. But what I wanted to talk about here is the filibuster. I don't know if all of you understand what the filibuster is, It started out where people would filibuster something by standing up at the podium and talking endlessly, reading books, just to tie up the time and delay it and delay it. And now it's gotten down to the point where all they say, yeah, we're going to filibuster. And now all of a sudden, you need 60 votes to pass any bill. So in the situation we have now in in the Senate is we've got 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats. Now, in order to get to 60, we need 10 Republicans to side with the Democrats. But unfortunately, the Republicans are constantly obstructing any bill that the Democrats put up. Now, theoretically, under a normal majority rule, the win would go to somebody with 51 votes, and that would always be the Democrat. Well, not always, but it should be the Democrats because the tiebreaker is the vice president, Kamala Harris. So in a normal majority, Democrats would be able to get plenty of things across. But because of the filibuster, because they can enact the filibuster, the minority group can hold some sway, can have some power, and shut things down and say, yeah, you've got the, they'll tell the Democrats, yeah, you've got the majority, but now you've got to get 10 of us on your side. And... In normal Senates over the years, there's been some bipartisanism. I've talked about this before, and there is no more bipartisan situations at all. The Republicans strictly want to block everything the Democrats do. Don't believe me? Really? They did it for eight years with Obama. They did it for four years under Trump, and they blocked everything that the Democrats wanted to do. 
They believe that's the only way they can win an election by shutting down the Democrats and not allowing them to do anything. But the problem with that is, the problem with that is, is that nothing gets done for the country. Nothing gets done for us. And that's not their job. Their job isn't to promote themselves and save themselves. Their job, uh, over and above getting reelected, is to do things that are needed for this country to run, to operate. Things to help the citizens of this country. And they aren't doing that. So the natural thing would be, hey, let's get rid of the filibuster. Yeah, let's do that. We should get rid of the filibuster. And we could if it weren't for a couple of things. They are Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, Democratic Senator Kristen Cinema. Now, these people are troublesome. They are Democrats, but they come from uh, conservative areas, so they feel a compulsion to side with the Republicans sometimes or, or go against the progressives or those people that want to do something more liberal. Now, Joe, Sim, uh, Joe Manchin particularly says, yeah, we're not getting rid of the filibuster. It's important for bipartisanism. And as we were coming up to this, this uh, vote on the Insurrection Commission— he kept insisting that there's going to be 10 Republicans that uh, will be patriots and vote for this, and we'll get it through. I mean, let's be honest. This is a bipartisan commission to figure out why and how our U.S. Capitol was attacked and an insurrection was attempted. That seems like a slam dunk. Who wouldn't be for that? Who wouldn't want to find out more about that? But the Republicans don't. And we knew they didn't because they participated in it and they're going to be exposed. So they're not going to let anything happen they can, that they can control. But Joe Manchin is fearful, for whatever reason, of getting rid, rid of the filibuster. He thinks it's important. He thinks it could ruin this country if we got rid of it. Let's understand the filibuster. The filibuster is to give the minority um, in the Senate a little bit of help in terms of even in and out. It's like a handicap in bowling or go a golf or something like that, it seems. Um, and we are a democracy, and I always thought majority rules, which would be 51 over 50. But they have to game in a little bit. And it kind of all started with Jim Crow trying to keep blacks from being able to vote. And it's always been something held over the head of the black community. So it doesn't come from a good place. It doesn't come from a good place. And the reason why the filibuster has never been gotten rid of, because both sides know at some point they're going to be the minority. So they don't want to give up that power. But now it's gotten so bad and so many things need to be done. The Democrats are willing to go all in and let's get rid of the filibuster. But that can't be done until Cinema and Mansion agree to do it. And up to this point, they've said, no, we don't want to do it. They're Democrats, but they don't want to side with the Democrats on this point. So what happened was they keep saying, no, we got to keep it bipartisan. We got to do this. And by losing this insurrection commission bill, this was actually helpful to the Democrats, I think. The thing is, is that now they can go to 
Joe Manchin and say, look, we tried it your way. You said there's bipartisanism, but there's not. They didn't even vote for this bipartisan insurrection commission. They didn't vote for this. All they are doing is obstructing every bill that comes through. It's going to be hard for Manchin to answer that. Now they'll probably run through a a couple of easier bills that the Republicans will block again. And that pressure is going to mount on Manchin, not only from his fellow senators, but from the House of Representatives and from people in public. The people are going to get tired that this one guy representing this small area is dictating what we can and can't do as Democrats, and then ultimately stopping everybody from getting the services and attention that Senate, the Senate is supposed to give to the people. Now, I'm sure this guy relishes having the power he perceives himself to have. And he's kind of playing with it, playing Mitch McConnell over there, trying to do this. And that's probably feeding his ego. The problem with this is the pressure is going to call right on him. You know, he's just the little guy, and he's going to say, I got all kinds of power. But then the pressure's going to hit him. Public opinion, the Senate, the House, the President, this is all going to be hanging over his head. He's going to say, hey, man, I'm just a little guy. Don't pick on me. Well, you're playing like you're the big guy. You're a wrench in what's trying to be done here. And what's trying to be done is not bad. It's not evil. It's trying to get the wheels of, of government moving in the favor of the country and the people who pay the bills. Now, Joe, how can you be against that? And at some point, he's going to have to fold. He's going to have to bend. And I'm thinking, too, that there are probably some other leverages where other Democratic senators just shut him out of anything where he can't hold sway. He's going to lessen his power just by virtue of how people treat him and how people look at him. So in some respects, the fact that they didn't pass that bill, the Insurrection Commission, may be a positive thing because they're still going to have the legal stuff. We're still going to have the investigations by the Democrats. But now Joe's going to get some get some pressure. Now, this filibuster thing has been going on for decades, and nobody's ever fought to get rid of it. And to be perfectly honest with you, the people that benefit the most from this filibuster being gone are us, because now things will get done. And when things start getting done, it will encourage more bipartisanism, because they know they don't have an ace card in their pocket where they can shut anything down they want. So now they're going to have to start dealing. So it only makes sense to get rid of the filibuster. Joe likes the power, but the pressure's got to go on Joe Manchin. People have to show their outrage to Joe Manchin and to the Senate in general. The Senate has a job to serve us. And in 12 years, they haven't done much of anything. I mean, we got the uh, stimulus bill passed. Just barely, because we didn't have to use the filibuster or the, the supermajority of 60 votes. We got it on 51 votes. We need to make it so that we aren't restricted. 
whether they be Democrats or Republicans, by having to get those 60 votes. It makes no sense. It's just a little rule they put in to game the system or to flatten the playing field. But this is government. This is democracy. Majority rules and things need to be done. So that's why the filibuster has to be gotten rid of. But Joe Manchin is the fly in the ointment. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him now. He was talking all big and excited that he asked, 10 people are going to come through for the Republicans. Don't worry, bipartisan is the core of what we're doing in the Senate. Well, Joe, I'm sorry, you were wrong. You were horribly wrong. Now you got to rethink your stance. Now you got to rethink how you're going to approach this. I know you told us you'd never get rid of the filibuster, but you may not have any choice. If you're a real senator and really want to do good work for the people, you can't believe there's bipartisanism anymore because you've seen it for yourself on something that should have been a slam dunk. That should have passed by 80 or 90 percent, but it didn't. Now, there are reasons for it. doesn't matter what the reasons are. But Joe says there's bipartisanism, and this last action shows there's not. So what you're thinking, Joe, isn't true. So the fact that you were going to push aside and, and not consider getting rid of the filibuster, that needs to change, too. Because I can tell you what Schumer's going to do. Schumer's going to bring some other easy, basic, maybe even unimportant bills that he knows the Republicans will shut down, and he'll bring them up, and he'll bring them up. And each time everyone is shut down, that's going to be another nail in Joe Manchin's coffin. That's going to be a little more pressure on his back, and eventually he's going to break. That filibuster is going to be gone, or adjusted in a way where it makes some sense. Just watch Joe Manchin. Watch the Senate. Don't worry about the... the uh, insurrection commission not being passed there's going to be plenty of options to get all the information out there and it will happen and the people who were involved will go down and as they go down that will weaken the senate and the house for the republicans it all takes time i know it gets frustrating i know you get anxious but just let it ride out let it do what it's doing because it's going the right way anyway i'm going to wrap it up here You have a great Memorial Day and the rest of the week. I'm going to be back with you, as I always am, at least three times a week. And uh, we'll talk about more of the stuff that's going on when we get off vacation and get back to business as usual on the Rational Boomer Podcast. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.